Welcome, everybody. This is Dr. Paul Kilgore, host of the Quantitative Health Podcast, and I am so glad you're here today. Now, before we get going, I wanted to mention that you can contact me or connect with me anytime on social media, including Twitter and Instagram. You can also visit me at our website, which is www.quantitative-health.com, and you can also call me directly anytime at one 888 406-0008. And at our website, feel free to contact me and schedule a free 15-minute consultation with me at any time that's convenient for you. I really, really look forward to meeting you. Today, I am calling this a very special episode. This is going to be a health magazine type format that we're starting here at the Quantitative Health Podcast. And so I'm going to call this the QH Health Magazine Podcast. This is the February issue number one. It's great that you're here because we're going to be reviewing and discussing trending topics, important health topics that are both timely and relevant for you that you may be hearing about in the news or in recent events that have occurred. And after listening to this podcast, I would love your feedback. Let me know if you find this podcast helpful by liking the podcast, recommending it to your friends, your family, your coworkers, or send me an email. You can also send me suggestions with future topic ideas that you'd like to hear about or any suggestions about the format or other contents. Now, let's get into today's topics. Before I do that, though, I do want to give you one quick warning. That warning is that today we're going to talk about some very serious health topics. Some of the information I give you is going to be kind of graphic and telling you about what happens in some of these conditions. So I just want to give you a quick warning note about that so that you can listen carefully for those or perhaps take notes. Okay, now, February is Heart Health Month. This is a very, very important topic, as you know, because in the United States, one person dies every 37 seconds from cardiovascular disease. It's incredible. So we're actually seeing about one out of every four deaths in the United States are due to cardiovascular disease. In fact, in the United States, heart disease is one of the most expensive tickets and items that we have in our healthcare system. It costs about $219 billion every year. That's statistics from 2014-2015, which means that it's even more costly nowadays. The price has gone up. What we're seeing every year in the United States is about one and a half million heart attacks and strokes every year. We also know that more than 800,000 people die in the United States from cardiovascular disease every year. That's about one out of every three deaths. And in fact, some of these are young people. Some, we also find that about 18 million people who are aged 20 years and older are suffering from coronary artery disease. And many of these people may not even know that they have blockages in their coronary arteries. What we also know is that about two out of every 10 deaths from coronary artery disease happen in people who are younger than 65 years of age. So these are pretty young people, kind of in the prime of life, who are really suffering serious illness. In fact, it could be a heart attack. So here's the question. So what? Why does this matter to me? Why should I care? Well, first, you should know that heart disease is not fun, okay? If there's one illness that I can think of 
that you want to avoid at any time in your life, that would be heart disease. And you may be thinking, why does Dr. Kilgore say this? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what heart disease can look like. Let me first tell you about who I think you could call the lucky ones. And I put lucky ones in quotation marks because even though I say they're lucky, in fact, it's not something that you want to experience. And what I'm talking about here is a gradual decline in heart function over time. This could happen as you get older, or it could happen over the course of a year or two, or even months in some cases. And this can happen to you, and sometimes it kind of creeps up on people and they don't notice it right away. Some of the things that you may start to feel when you have this gradual decline in heart function is a gradual loss of tolerance in physical activity, in exercise, moving around, or even just walking. You may also begin to notice that your ability to walk up a hill may decline. You may also notice a gradual increase in shortness of breath. And you may also start to notice that you're more fatigued than usual even though you think you're sleeping and eating okay and everything else seems to be going well. Of course, there's many other signs of fatigue that we're going to talk about, a great topic for future podcasts, but certainly cardiac function or limitations in cardiac function can be associated with gradual fatigue or even nuance of fatigue or increasing fatigue. So these are signs that I just described, loss of exercise tolerance, increasing shortness of breath, increasing fatigue, loss of your ability to walk some distance, all of these can be indicators or signs of heart disease. They may also indicate that you have some issues in reduced blood flow to your or through your coronary arteries that supply blood and oxygen to your heart. It may also suggest you are experiencing what we call heart failure. Or in medical language, we call this congestive heart failure, CHF. Congestive heart failure starts to occur when your heart, specifically your heart muscle, does not work as well as it should. You may be thinking, who are the unlucky ones? Why do some of these people get into trouble with heart disease? This is a really important question to think about because when you know the answer, you can take some important action steps to prevent it. And that's what we really want to think about today. When we think about who gets heart disease, we think about those traits or those characteristics that are found more among people that get the disease. We call these risk factors, okay? What are the risk factors for heart disease? Well, here's what everyone should know. One of the most important risk factors for heart disease is high blood pressure. Doctors call this hypertension. Another risk factor can be high levels of cholesterol. And we're gonna talk about this risk factor a great deal this year because you will see it discussed in many different locations by many different individuals, and there's lots to learn about it. Another key risk factor for heart disease is smoking, cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking accounts for about one-fifth of all deaths from heart disease in the United States. Smokers, in fact, have a two to four times increased risk of coronary artery disease and about 70% higher death rate from coronary artery disease than do people that don't smoke. Nicotine, in fact, the addictive part or the addictive drug that's in cigarette smoke or tobacco affects brain and muscle activity. It actually can increase your blood pressure. It then makes your heart work harder. Another content of tobacco smoke, which is very important to know about, is carbon monoxide. 
This is a poisonous gas that actually replaces oxygen in your blood. It actually reduces the ability of your blood to carry oxygen to your heart and other organs like your brain. In fact, you could look at cigarette smoking as almost like putting your mouth on the exhaust pipe of a car. Imagine that. One thing to know about carbon monoxide, or we abbreviate that CO, it binds to a key protein in your blood cells. We call this hemoglobin. When you have carbon monoxide, instead of oxygen binding to your hemoglobin, it means that your hemoglobin and blood cells can carry less oxygen than they really should. And that's not a good thing when we talk about getting oxygen to your muscles, your heart, your brain, and other important organs that take care of you every day. Now, when you inhale cigarette smoke, you inhale this carbon monoxide that's in the smoke from your lungs. The carbon monoxide actually gets directly absorbed through the cells in your lungs. It goes directly to your blood cells, and that's where it begins to bind to that hemoglobin that I mentioned. And guess what? When you have this carbon monoxide binding to your hemoglobin, preventing the good stuff, the oxygen from binding, that's when you start to get into trouble. It basically suffocates your organs and body because it's, your body's not getting the oxygen it normally should get. Now, you can imagine then that when you starve your blood, your blood cells, your red blood cells, and then you starve your heart of oxygen, it's not going to work as well as it should. And when this happens, your heart will be very unhappy, and that's when your heart starts to experience the difficulties. A few of the things you should know about cigarettes. Because the smoke contains nicotine, the nicotine is a chemical that has a direct action on your blood vessels. It basically tightens them up. It causes blood vessels to constrict, to get narrow. And when they get narrow, two things can happen. Number one, it causes high blood pressure because the blood vessels narrow throughout your body and not just in one location. It also causes reduced blood flow to key organs like your brain. So your brain and your heart are getting less blood than they really need. And this can increase your risk of a heart attack when you get low blood flow because that low blood flow translates to low blood flow in your coronary arteries that supply that heart muscle. One other very important thing that you need to know about cigarette smoke and nicotine, it constricts the blood vessels throughout your body and it means then it constricts the blood vessels in your brain. When you constrict those blood vessels in your brain, you actually can cause stroke. So this is one of the reasons why high blood pressure can lead to stroke. So cigarette smoking leading to high blood pressure can lead to a stroke. There's one more thing I want you to know about nicotine and cigarette smoking. The chemicals in nicotine cause your blood to thicken. This is, can cause plaques or clots to form in blood vessels, and the clots that form can actually form in the heart blood vessels. We call those the coronary arteries. When we get those blood clots in your coronary arteries, and it, if it happens suddenly, that's where you get this sudden chest pain. You, your heart does not work. You can get an abnormal heart rhythm, and that can also lead to a heart attack when you cut off that blood flow suddenly with a clot in your coronary artery. All of this is made worse if you have narrowing of the coronary arteries due to cholesterol plaques. We're going to talk much more about this in the future. Now, it turns out that about half of Americans, really about 47%, have a, at least one of these risk factors that I just mentioned. So high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and smoking. It turns out that there's other important medical conditions and lifestyle choices 
to know about that can put you at higher risk of heart disease and things that you can actually work on and treat and work on with a doctor. First one is diabetes. Second is overweight or obesity. And related to that may be the unhealthy diet or a lack of physical activity or physical inactivity. And excessive alcohol use is another risk factor for heart disease. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. The good news is that everyone in 2020 can take some steps, some simple steps to stay well and get healthier. We can actually reverse the effects of some of these things that I just mentioned. And number one is by stopping smoking, you can actually help your arteries regain that flexibility that they had before you start smoking. And it will help your body carry the oxygen you need to your heart and to your brain better. So that's a very important reason to stop smoking. It's not easy to stop smoking. Seeing a doctor or a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner is a good first step. You can have them also do a checkup. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute again. But when you have that checkup, you can make sure that they check your blood pressure. And that's a first step. If your blood pressure is elevated and you learn about this for the first time, that's a very important point of learning. You will then want to have it checked maybe a few more times and see if there's a trend. If you have a persistently elevated blood pressure, then you know you need to take some action. And the actions may be changing your diet, exercise, and potentially taking a medicine to help lower that blood pressure. But remember, if you're smoking and you have high blood pressure, one way you can help reduce that blood pressure right away is to stop smoking. The minute you stop smoking reduces the chemicals in your blood that cause that hypertension, that high blood pressure. So that's a really important thing to tell yourself. But also, if someone in your family or a friend or a loved one smokes, you can help educate them and help them find ways to stop smoking. If they've tried to quit smoking before and they've restarted smoking, then keep trying and try again. And then if they start back, try again and again. So persistence and patience is the key for sure with quitting smoking. To help reduce that blood pressure, I also mentioned before the diet. And the diet's very important. In a previous podcast last year, I spoke of blood pressure. And in that podcast, I talked about the DASH diet. Feel free to go into our podcast episode listing and archive. And you can pull down that episode and listen to it. It's a great one because... One of the things we talk about is what you can do in terms of changing your food consumption that will help lower your blood pressure. Now, when you go in for that checkup and you see your doctor or nurse practitioner or anyone in the clinic, ask them to check your heart. Listen to your heart. You want them to hear your heart with the stethoscope. That's on the front of your chest. And then they'll listen to your lungs around the same time during that exam. Also, they can check your heart rhythm. Ask them, if they don't do it, to do an EKG, an ECG. The EKG, or ECG, stands for electrocardiogram. Electrocardiogram. This is a simple office procedure that you can have just lying down on the bench in the office, and the nurse or the doctor or the clinic assistant will put some stickers on your chest in several locations, and then they'll have the wires attached to the machine, and the machine will measure your heart rhythm from that. 
Very important because we can learn a lot just by looking at that, what we call rhythm strip from the different leads in the EKG. And we can tell if you've had a heart problem in the past, we can tell if you have an ongoing heart problem, and we can especially see if you have a heart rhythm abnormality. Now, when we talk about going back to the diet and thinking about diets that you prepare for your family, if you're not doing this routinely, please go look at every food label that you have and read the food labels that you have in the grocery store before you buy the food next time. You could be at the grocery store or market in any aisle, and as you pick up that food, just read it, take a minute to read the ingredients, and you'll be amazed what's in there. Frequently, you'll see added sugar, added salt, other added chemicals uh, whose name you don't recognize, and even added fat. And here's the action item. Start taking out the foods from your diet that you know are processed, that are not healthy. And those are things like the snack foods and other things that are processed foods that you would buy in the supermarket aisles. Foods that are high in fat and sugar, you can find on those interior aisles, you know, in the market, in the grocery store. Just leave those on the shelf next time. Instead, head for those aisles that have the fruits and the vegetables. That's where you want to be. Grab those fruits and vegetables you like, and then be a little adventurous and try something new that you've never tried before. You may even consider going to your computer before you go shopping or your smartphone and look up a new recipe that calls for fruits and vegetables. Try one of those this week or this month, and you'll find a new meal that you can make in the near future, I'm sure. So there's a lot of information there about heart disease. Let's talk a little bit about some key messages and action steps again. Heart disease is a leading killer of Americans, for sure. And I don't want you to be one of the millions that die from heart disease. So what can you do? Go ahead and schedule that appointment with your primary care doctor or primary care clinic. Tell them that you want to get a checkup with a physical exam. And that's especially true if you haven't had it in over a year. Tell them before you go, and then when you're there again, tell them you want your heart checked out. And even before going to the doctor, if you're smoking now, make the decision here today, starting right now, that you're going to stop smoking. And I know you can do it because millions of people have done it already. There's one, this is one of the most important things you can do not to get heart disease and that you can do to prevent a heart attack. If you do smoke, don't worry. There are tools that your doctor and clinic can talk to you about that can really, really help you stop smoking. Stopping smoking could really save your life. Next, make sure you know your blood pressure. Have your doctor, your clinic staff measure your blood pressure and ask them to write down these numbers for you so it's easy for you to remember and you can track those numbers over time from one year to the next or from one clinic visit to the next. If you find that your blood pressure is higher than normal over several measurements, then you know it's time to start treating that high blood pressure and you know it's time to start looking carefully at your lifestyle, diet, exercise, smoking, behaviors, even excessive alcohol use that you may have that you can do, take some action on and then reduce your risk of heart disease. One more thing, when you see your doctor, also make sure they check your blood sugar. The sugar level in your blood is very important because it will tell you if you're diabetic or even pre-diabetic. Treating diabetes is very, very important to help reduce your heart disease risk and the risk that you get a heart attack. Now, a couple additional things to think about. If you know you're heavy or overweight, you know that you may need to lose some pounds. 
being overweight is a risk factor for heart disease that you can work on also to correct. And I know for a fact, losing weight and keeping the weight off is never easy. And it's even, it seems more complicated now because there's so many diets out there. And so a good first step is to talk with your primary care physician and ask them to connect you with a dietitian or nutritionist so you can get good ideas for changing your diet and moving to a healthier diet that will help you also reduce, reduce your weight. Finally, a discussion around heart disease here today wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about drinking and alcohol consumption. This is especially true because today it's Super Bowl Sunday. And you may be thinking, well, what does alcohol have to do with my heart? I don't see the connection at all. It, it turns out there's actually a big connection. Long-term heavy alcohol use is something that we know weakens the heart muscle. The technical term that we use for this weakening of the heart muscle over time is cardiomyopathy. Now, when this happens, our heart really cannot circulate as much blood as it should to the other parts of our body, and that's when we start to get into trouble. One of the things that we know is that binge drinking, like around a major holiday or Super Bowl Sunday, can cause irregular heart rhythms. You may have heard the term AFib or atrial fibrillation. This is an abnormal, potentially dangerous heart rhythm that is associated with heart attack. We find it with stroke and we see it in heart failure as well. So keep in mind, if you can limit your alcohol consumption or believe it or not, stop completely, then you will protect your heart. You will lower your risk of heart disease and even lower your risk of a heart attack. That's what we're talking about today for heart disease. Let's move into our second topic. And the second topic is another timely one. It's flu, influenza. And you may be thinking, well, why does he need to talk about flu now? This is just like the common cold, right? Well, let's talk about why influenza is dangerous. And when I say flu, I'm talking about influenza. Influenza or flu is caused by a virus, the influenza virus. And if you've never experienced flu firsthand, it can be easy to kind of shrug off the warning signs or think of it as just a basic cough or fever or even very similar to the common cold. Here is the reality in the United States. We've seen several thousand. Now the latest statistics are showing us about 10,000 people have died and about 180,000 have been hospitalized. And this is just during the 2019 2020 influenza season. And the flu season generally starts around October of each year and ends sometime in March or April. In some, some cases, we get it going into May. We have to think about flu a lot. In fact, we should be more worried about flu than we are about the coronavirus epidemic that you've seen in the news a lot lately. Why is this? Flu or the flu virus can move very, very easily from one person to another. It's what we call a highly transmissible infection. It means it's very, very contagious. And flu can be very severe. If you've been one of the lucky people so far and never had the flu, you may actually think that's nothing more than just a cough or a fever that you get over in a few days. Well, it turns out that flu can make you really, really sick. It starts slowly. So high fever, severe aches, muscle aches, sometimes joint aches people end up getting fatigue, and sometimes that fatigue gets really progressive. They get super fatigued, super tired to the point where they can't even get out of bed. And that's just the start. If the flu gets worse, you start to feel very bad, and your breathing gets very, very difficult. 
In fact, you can start to feel short of breath just sitting there. I've seen this firsthand, and believe me, this is very scary. And let me say this. If you start to get fever, aches, cough, sore throat, headaches, any one of these, go see your doctor or go to a clinic right away. If it turns out that you're doing fine and it's not the flu, that's great. You're going to get out of there quickly. And you may be thinking, well, I, I thought the flu virus is really just kind of this minor thing that people get every year and not a big deal. Don't really need the vaccine because it's not that severe an illness. Well, here's what you really need to know. The early symptoms or signs of flu can be mild. That's true. But the illness of flu, the illness that we see with people that have flu can progress quickly and it can get worse very fast. The good news is when you go into a clinic or even a hospital or emergency department, there is a rapid flu test. This is a diagnostic test that can be done literally in the office right away. And it just requires a swab. It doesn't even require any blood collection. Now, there are tests that you can do for flu that require blood, but there's a swab test as well. And you can get the result very quickly in a matter of minutes, sometimes even less than 20 minutes. I had this done a couple of years ago. I got the test back in less than 20 minutes. Very quick turnaround time. If that test is positive for flu, there are drugs that you can take right now that are available that we call antivirals. These will attack the flu virus, stop it from causing illness in your body, and it will help you feel better more quickly than if you didn't take it. We know that these antivirals can not only shorten the duration of illness, but they can reduce the severity of the illness as well. So that's very, very important. You may be thinking, well, that is such a bother to go into the office, see a doctor, wait, and there's other sick people there, and it takes a lot of time, and I need to go to work anyway, so I'm just going to kind of stick it out. I'm going to stay at home for a few days, and then I'm going to go back to work. So let me tell you that that is not a good plan for a couple reasons. One is that if you have flu and you're at home, if you get worse, if the illness progresses and you get worse, you may not have the strength to get yourself to a clinic or a hospital. Number two, if you have the illness and it is flu, and you go into work, you're going to give other people the flu too. And you don't want to do that because that's how we perpetuate the epidemic. And just to be nice to other people and keep other people healthy, you want to keep yourself away from other people if you have the flu. Don't try to stick it out at home. My recommendation is watch those symptoms and get into a doctor's office as soon as you can because these symptoms will start progressively look kind of minor and then really accelerate pretty quickly. Becomes to the point where you may even feel chest tightness or even chest pain when you take a deep breath. You may feel like your breath or your breathing is worsening. Like you have this worsening shortness of breath and you can't actually get enough air. Believe me, by this time, you know something is wrong and the partner in your home or your family will need to know that you need to get to a doctor, get to a hospital. So in the next scenario, then, you're rushed to the hospital. You get into the emergency room where there's many people, of course, because in the winter season, emergency rooms get very crowded, of course. Perhaps there's hundreds of people waiting there to get seen by a doctor. I've been to the emergency room with family members where you wait and wait and wait, and it could be 
hours until they actually get to you, you get the treatment, the diagnosis that you need. So you don't want to wait to the last minute. That's why it's better to go when you have mild symptoms and go to a doctor's clinic, you get seen and you get a solution, a treatment quicker. Now, in the emergency room, you're going to be seen by nurses, you're going to be seen by assistants and doctors eventually, but you're going to have to wait. And as you're waiting there in the emergency room, what happens? You start to continue to feel worse, uh, difficulty breathing, and you feel perhaps even as if you're going to die to the point where your breathing is so difficult. So what do they do? They put you on a machine. The machine that they attach to your finger is called a pulse oximeter. So the pulse oximeter is attached to your finger, uh, just clips onto your fingertip, and it tells us how much oxygen you have in your blood. The doctors may see that blood oxygen level is low, and by low, we're talking something less than 90-95%. Let's say it's 80-85%. to 85%. So what do they do next? Well, they're going to put some oxygen in a tube, and we call those nasal cannula. These are two prongs in your nose, and you can breathe, and then you can get more oxygen. It gives you oxygen, extra oxygen. Hopefully, at that point, you start to feel a little bit better, but it's possible that you don't. And by the time the flu virus is spread in your body, it can go throughout your lungs. And that's what the flu virus does. It spreads. Once this happens, you can get into real trouble. Because even if you get that antiviral, anti-flu medicine that I mentioned, it may actually be too late. And then what can docs do then? There's really only a few options. And, and here's where it kind of gets ugly. If you were healthy before, you may have told your family that you're willing to go on a breathing machine. In medicine, we call this a ventilator. If you do that, that's where they insert that breathing tube down your throat. Just having this done is never fun, and it never feels good. In fact, it can cause pain, even bleeding if it's not done correctly. It can also damage your vocal cords if it's not done properly. What else needs to be done? Well, at this point, with your advanced flu, it's going to spread to both lungs, and that's where docs get very worried about just keeping you alive. The reason for this is that there's another disease called ARDS. It stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. This disease can occur with very severe, very advanced influenza, flu. The lungs get damaged as a result of the flu virus, and the resulting inflammation that's part of your body's reaction to kill the flu actually also can damage your lungs indirectly. And I'll just tell you from personal experience, ARDS is very difficult to treat. This is especially true in anyone that's had prior lung disease or has been a smoker in the past or is a current smoker. There are thousands of cases of persons who get the flu, make it to the emergency room, get hospitalized, require that special breathing tube, get into the intensive care unit, are there for a few days, develop ARDS, but ultimately we can't save them. And they die because the disease progresses to the point where the lungs become so damaged that they cannot recover and the patient cannot be brought off that ventilator. To make matters even worse, flu can become more complicated when we start to see what we call a secondary bacterial infection. This is a bacterial pneumonia that can get set up in your lungs because the lungs are damaged already by that flu virus. And then the bacteria love that. They come in and they can just take advantage of that damage and they really set up a nasty infection. And that's double trouble. When you get that, you are really, really in trouble. If you have any kind of phlegm production with a flu, 
and or if you recovered a little bit and then you get this secondary trend, then you know you have to get to the doctor in the hospital right away. Pneumonia is a lung infection where the lungs, the airways in the lungs become inflamed, the air sacs really become filled with fluid, and that can be life-threatening. It's almost like you're suffocating. Children on the age of two are at risk, pregnant women, especially adults who are over the age of 65, and anyone who has a compromised immune system, they could be on chemotherapy or had an organ transplant and on immunosuppressive drugs for any reason, those people have to be especially watchful for these signs and symptoms of flu and also bacterial pneumonia. So let's review. The key symptoms of flu include fever, body aches, chills, and tiredness or fatigue. Remember, the symptoms can start almost without warning. And most people will get through the early signs or symptoms that may feel like the flu with minor discomfort. That's true. But the flu can take you out of commission for much longer. You can be out for a week or more. And you also want to be careful with the flu because it can come in this two-phase process. That two-phase process is one in which you start to feel better in the beginning and then it takes a turn for the worse later. That second part could be that setup for that bacterial pneumonia we talked about. That's where that bacterial infection in your lungs takes hold. And it's really the flu virus that's making us more susceptible to bacterial lung infections. And you may find that you develop a severe cough, phlegm is coming up, greenish, Sometimes there's even blood in it or yellowish color and the fever can go up again. You really start to feel short of breath and have difficulty breathing. you got to get into the doctor immediately if you start to see anything like that. Remember, if you recognize symptoms early on, you could get this antiviral treatment for influenza from your doctor, which can lessen the duration and the severity of flu and can actually prevent complications of influenza like bacterial pneumonias. So remember, See your doctor as soon as possible if you start to get those flu signs and symptoms. Very, very important topics today. We've talked about heart disease, how to recognize it, some action steps you can take today. We've talked about influenza or flu, how to recognize it, what to do about it, how to prevent it from getting very severe. And one of the bottom lines for today is go in, schedule a visit to see your doctor, your clinic, or your healthcare provider. Could be internal medicine, family medicine, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, make sure you get seen, get that regular checkup. And if you do have any signs and symptoms that I discussed today, make sure you get in to see your doctor as soon as possible and get those things taken care of. All right. Thanks so much. And we'll talk again soon.